Welcome to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. I'm Sherrod DeGrippo. Ever wanted to step into the shadowy realm of digital espionage, cybercrime, social engineering, fraud? Well, each week, dive deep with us into the underground. Come here for Microsoft's elite threat intelligence researchers. Join us as we decode mysteries, expose hidden adversaries, and shape the future of cybersecurity. It might get a little weird, but don't worry. I'm your guide to the back alleys of the threat landscape. Hey, and welcome to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. I am joined today with some Microsoft threat research experts, threat analyst experts, and we're going to talk about a blog that just dropped from Microsoft Threat Intelligence and Microsoft Incident Response, groups previously tracked as Dart and Mystic. And we're just going to dig into this threat actor and some of the TTPs that we're seeing. Threat actor called Octo Tempest. You may have heard of them. Octopus, Scattered Spider, UNC 3944. Hey, team. Welcome to uh, Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, there. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining me. So this is a very intense blog. Like, There's a lot going on in here. You've all read it. It's a far-reaching read. I mean, we're seeing in this timeline, they're going all the way back to October 2022 with stuff about the tradecraft being used here. This threat actor, I mean, for all intents and purposes, let me ask you your opinion here. It is financially motivated and crime group, but when we talk APT, I would definitely give them that advanced and persistent tag. What do you think in, in terms of the advanced and persistent side of it? So I'm not so much sure as advanced as they're very persistent. And the way that they do things is some of the tools that they're able to use and the way that they use them is very ingenious. They're essentially reimagining some old tried and true techniques. But I'll let the others chip in and see if they have a different opinion. I'd agree with that statement. And They're highly effective, and I don't want that to be lost with the previous comment there. And it's because they use, they exploit fundamental weaknesses in organizations where there's breakdowns in security, and they're very effective at, as previously stated, uh, tried and true techniques like social engineering. And they're incredibly persistent once they found a victim that they are interested in, and they keep coming back and back and back until they finally uh, realize success. Okay. And in the blog, it says kind of to that effect, like they progressively advance their motives, targets, and techniques. So like they're tracked in this particular blog that came out from early 2022 all the way up to mid-2023. And it looks like they continue to just kind of upskill their craft over and over again. It looks like there's a big array of TTPs. You mentioned social engineering, which I want to get into. But the thing that freaks me out the most about this is the sim swapping. So could one of you kind of walk me through, for people that might not know, what exactly is sim swapping and why is it such a problem? Essentially, at its core, what happens with sim swapping is if an adversary is able to, quote unquote, swap your sim, they're able to essentially transfer your phone number to theirs. So it defeats things such as SMS two-factor. That's one of the ways that they utilize that. So it, it actually, in, in one of the engagements, uh, how it all started is a user noti- or actually noticed, woke up and noticed that 
he had lost cell service. Uh, none of his messages were going through. And then there were certain accesses to his account that he couldn't actually uh, get into because he couldn't use his phone. So that's how the whole thing started. So at his core, that's, that's what SIM swapping is. So would you say then that like if somebody wakes up and their phone isn't connecting to their cell network, that they are potentially looking at SIM swapping? It could be, right? That's one of the one of the ways that you could recognize or realize that you may be a victim of SIM swapping. Okay. And I also see in here SMS phishing employee phone numbers with a link to a site configured with a fake login portal, and then they use adversary in the middle. That's a tactic that we've seen across the threat landscape in terms of sending links. They're using SMS to do it. Are they specifically going through from what it looks like, they're specifically going through and collecting lists of employees that they can then SMS fish with something really, like, really crafted and configured specifically for that particular employee. Is that a big part of the TTPs here? Right, it is. And I think that another reason why they do it through SMS is because most some organizations may not have visibility into that like they would normal phishing, right? Because if you... If you get a fish, it's going through email filters. You may have certain email protections in there. However, uh, with SMS, maybe orgs don't have that, uh, that same visibility. So that if a user does click on their personal device, there's really no visibility or way to respond within that, unless, of course, you're using some type of uh, MDM for that particular user. Okay, so basically, that SMS vector is essentially really attractive because it's out of the visibility of an enterprise security program. Right. Okay. It can be. Again, for most of them, I mean, how many of us, our personal devices are actually enrolled in some type of uh, MDM for our companies, right? So it's common for work phones, but again, a reason why I think they, they target personal devices is to avoid that visibility, like I mentioned before. And so something else, like if they're collecting lists of employees to send SMS fish targeting to, it also, in this blog, says that they're using enumeration and information gathering on those environments, both it looks like on people, systems, et cetera. So from what we can see here, what is that initial reconnaissance like ahead of time? Is it really thorough? Is it quick and dirty? How much of that reconnaissance does it look like they're doing initially? That's a challenging question to answer because prior to their engagement with a, with a victim, it's difficult to know like how much is done on like open source research uh, against employees on social media, and some of those you may never know. But I think this speaks back to one of your earlier points about kind of the wide gamut of things that they use and how they keep upscaling. And it comes back to the research. And I think one of the things that makes them very good at what they do is that they. Uh, and their social engineering and their success rate, how well they are, how good they are at fishing their targets is their research. And something that helps them with their TTPs is that they're not afraid of tailoring what they're doing to the specific organization. So it's obvious from how well they craft some of their phishing messages at times that they've done extensive research against some of these organizations because of how well the message is crafted to blend in with what normal for that organization would look like. And I'll yield to a comments from my uh, peers here as well. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll piggyback off of that. And 
they're also, I wouldn't say unique, but they are very efficient at, let's say, utilizing data that they may have compromised in prior breaches, right? Looking through that data, seeing if there are any individuals uh, that work for companies that they may want to target. And then they'll go ahead and target that specific company. And then they also, you know, because of that prior intrusion, they have specific data or may have specific data, uh, pie information, so to speak. We've been a part of some engagements where the threat actor was in the midst of social engineering, the, the help desk personnel, they were going through, the help desk personnel was doing their job and they asked for a second form of identification. In this case, it was a social security number. And in these recordings that we were allowed to listen to, the threat actor would pause for maybe a minute or so, and then they'd come back with the actual social security number of the victim that they were targeting, right? So they combine and they're able to leverage all of that in order to utilize and get an initial foothold into an organization. So they can actually be challenged in an IT um, help desk social engineering scenario. They can actually be challenged. I need additional identification from you and produce a social security number within a few minutes on that phone call. Yeah, it's, it's actually happened more than once. So that is super, super fast. That's crazy fast. And then the other thing that I've heard, and I'd love to get all of your uh, opinion on this. Something we've watched over the past several years are all the reports that come out about dwell time. Like, what is the dwell time between when a threat actor, any threat actor, has access to your network and they begin the encryption process? So, for ransomware type events, what is that dwell time? And, you know, years ago it was like two or three weeks, a month, a couple months. And everything that I've heard about this threat actor is that their dwell time is incredibly short. Compare and contrast for me, help me understand. When it comes to Octotempest, where do they fall in that dwell time hierarchy? That is, the appropriate answer to that is it depends. And nobody likes to hear that answer because it really depends on their victim environment and the security measures in place and the credentials that they access the environment with. But on average, their their dwell time is very low. And I mean that they're very fast. I've personally witnessed them go from initial access to spinning up their own infrastructure in a victim environment in under three hours. Three hours is super fast. Like I think there was a DBIR report last time that was like that gave a dwell time of like 24 hours. This actor from everything that I've heard about them across all of the different reporting that I've read, it just sounds like the dwell time is so short that it almost makes it like the game is really, the deck is really stacked against you as an enterprise in terms of discovery to prevention. Again, it uh, it depends on your environment and it depends on the control mechanisms that you have in place. It, it depends on the mitigations that you have in place. Because that's something that we always are discussing with customers and with clients is at one end of the spectrum, you have all the security posture and all the security mechanisms that you could possibly put in place on an enterprise. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have business alacrity and business productivity. And they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And each business finds somewhere on the spectrum that's comfortable for them. They have to allow productivity and they have to make a business risk decision of how many security measures they're going to put in place to allow that to exist in a secure environment. And the more that you have in place, the more mitigation, the less privilege escalation you can see, the 
the more you can slow a threat actor down, the more signals that you're going to have to witness them earlier and the faster you can remediate. And it's all about getting customers comfortable with being more secure, having more telemetry, having more signals, and realizing that there are ways to do things in a more secure way that isn't going to impact your business productivity, but it might inconvenience users as they adapt to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I think that that's a pretty common, you know, the business is always competing against the security, right? Like, I think making business super, super, super easy to do a lot of times isn't a secure way to do things. And so you kind of have to find that balance. Let me ask you this from a technical angle. What is the malware angle here? Because malware has traditionally always been like the initial access vector for a lot of stuff. Are they leveraging malware? I see a lot of mention of um, open source tools. Obviously, they do a lot of living off the land. Are they leveraging much malware? So they don't leverage a lot of malware. They have in, in some engagements, but generally they are utilizing, they're living off the land, right? One of the things that this threat actor is really good at doing is leveraging an organization's own security controls against them. For example, in one engagement, they utilize three or four different RMM tools that one of which the customer did use, but the other three, they didn't. And so from their standpoint, why go about using malware when you can accomplish the same thing with legitimate software, right? You can utilize legitimate software for malicious purposes. And that way, you know, you don't have to worry about security tools or different alerting and things like that. You're relying on organizations to be aware of different softwares and applications that are in their environment, which is in some cases a lot harder to identify than, let's say, malware. But again, that's not to say that they haven't used it entirely. Uh, we have been on engagements where we've seen them uh, leverage tools in which to push out, whether it be ransomware or info stealers and things of that nature. But normally by that time, they've already had a foothold in the environment. They've been in there for a little bit. They're typically modifying some of these security tools in which to allow this malware to run because normally... <laughs> the security tools will block it, but they do a good job of, like I said, modifying some of those security controls in which to allow the malware to run. And there's a whole section about that in this blog, the security product arsenal sabotage, evading defensive tools in this blog. And one of the things that it says is that the threat actor modifies the security staff email box rules to automatically de delete emails from vendors that might raise the target suspicion. So why would it why would a threat actor do that? What are they getting when they actually go to the point of editing mailbox rules? What are they getting for that? Well, again, it depends on which vendors they're modifying and the context in which they're modifying the emails. In some cases, where if you have like a vendor who was previously compromised by the threat actor and was trying to notify the customer that they were impacted. You can modify the inboxes to prevent notification of their victim that they're impacted. In some cases, they have also modified vendor emails for like EDR tooling so that they're not receiving specific email notification alerts but when they go and look at 
EDR tooling, the alerts are unmodified. So they're not modifying any of the tooling under the hood. So everything looks normal, but they're not receiving email notifications. So like if you have alerts set so that you receive email notifications for specific criteria on the weekend when most of the staff is not in, those just are deleted and you never see them. I mean, to be honest, it's like quite a clever you know, thing to do, right? Is it's not like a toolkit or a piece of malware, or it's like just a operational security choice of hiding your tracks. Right. And again, this is part of the, you know, reimagining some of these tried and true techniques that we've seen adversaries over the years employ. Because mm-hmm. every single business email compromise case that, you know, most of us can think of, uh, whether it be advanced or your, your common you know, script kitty, will go in there and modify an inbox rule, right? Just to try to hide their tracks. But in this case, it's different. They're trying to uh, you know, hide certain alerting and things of that nature. So it's just reimagining some of these tried and true techniques. In the blog, there's an analysis graphic and it shows all of the different TTPs across initial access, discovery, creds, defense evasion, persistence, and then objectives. And... Um, That defense evasion part is really, really fascinating because it says that they're leveraging the EDR and management tooling, which I think it takes hands-on keyboard to really do that. So is that something with this threat actor? Are they super, super bespoke, hands-on keyboard, really involved, maybe compared to other threat actors? Absolutely. I'll let the others chime in, but yeah, absolutely. This is where it comes into the resounding theme of research for the environment that they're in, is that they will spend the time to figure out what tooling the the victim has and what looks normal, and they will attempt to use it, and they will research what is in the enterprise that they're in and try to use the tooling of the, the victim against them so that it blends in as much as possible. So if they have management tooling already, They'll try to use that in, uh, in a non-standard way to achieve their goals, as uh, my colleague previously alluded to, because it's it's hard to detect what is what is normal and not normal when they're using the standard tooling within the environment. The same thing with the EDR. It sounds like the this particular threat actor is super like bespoke, hands-on, very DIY, doing a lot of things moment by moment and managing the like second by second intrusion, which is on a spectrum of like the other side of that coin is threat actors that we see, especially in the financially motivated side of the house that just like spray things out, like just massively blast out email campaigns full of, you know, a credfish landing page or a multi-stage malware download. And they just kind of are hoping for the best. It sounds like Octo Tempest is very specific and very moment by moment involved with that intrusion up to the ransomware point. Right. I would agree with that. There have been instances where literally it's 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 almost to borrow the the phrase, it's almost keyboard to keyboard combat, right? You you block one instance and then mm-hmm. in the next honestly 17 minutes, you know, there's another hands-on keyboard, there's another identity there's another shift between uh, persistence mechanisms. There really is uh, something that is uh, intense as far as when you're responding to an incident with Octo Tempest. Uh, we know they're they're fast or they can be fast, but it's also 
you know that you're actually going against another adversary who has hands on keyboard. And like my colleague said earlier, they are very, very persistent. Sometimes when you respond to certain incidents, maybe adversaries will, you know, just take what they have and, and run. But Octo Tempest will like to stay in and they will keep coming until you shut them out completely. And even then afterwards, uh, depending on the the target, they're going to keep trying to probe and see if they can get back in. So it's definitely something that is a little bit different when dealing with certain adversaries. When you say 17 minutes, what's happening in 17 minutes? There was an instance where we were engaged with a customer who had an Octo Tempest issue. And we had cut off one instance of their persistence mechanism. And then within 17 minutes, they had shifted to another persistence mechanism. So it's very fast. Man, these people are stressing me out. Just just hearing about this is very stressful. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you need to, to frame it in the standpoint of, like you mentioned earlier, other groups that just, as you said, use the spray and pray kind of automated mechanic of, we're going to blast out uh, a lot of phishing emails. We're going to see what we get and we're going to grab what we can and we're going to go versus this group who takes the opposite of approach of we're going to do the research. We're going to directly engage their victims. There's not a lot of automation there. And we're going to do kind of like a low density, high success, high human interaction with the victim organization because it has to be that way because we're they're tailoring their their TTPs and their methods to that specific organization. So it has to be more interactive on their end to, to fit that mold. And do you think as they're compromising and like ripping through an organization, are they making choices or does it seem like there's a established roadmap of a plan? We're going to go here, we're going to do this, we're going to go here, we're going to do this. Or does it sound like they're making a lot of decisions on the fly? I mean, I think that they have an overarching playbook that drives them and that uh, puts them down certain decisions on on their side because you can always make a prediction of what they're going to do initially and they're going to research the organization and try to find out what's within an organization, what level of access that they have and how an organization likes to do business and manage their IT. And from that research then they make their decisions on how they're going to continue to engage that victim organization. That's a good point that was just raised. When we see them gain initial access, uh, normally they're targeting specific users, let's say an IT user or something like that. When they gain access or find the level of access that they want, what they'll do is they'll uh, scrape the entire environment for information about how this environment works. Uh, what are the egress points? What are the ingress points? Uh, where's your VPN? How is, uh, do you have two-factor in front of your VPN? How is that set up? How does your user provisioning work? And things like that. So they're doing a lot of research. They're uh, scouring different repositories. For example, d- depending on the type of organization, you know, they might scour your code repositories and things like that for, for secrets, right? They're they're trying to gather as much intelligence about your organization as they can in order to do what we, we had just mentioned, to make those decisions, to try to stay as persistent as possible within the environment. So it sounds like they're doing that reconnaissance and intelligence collecting before the actual operations actually start against an organization, and they're still doing it? Is that correct? While they're inside? Right. So like I said, it's hard to know 
what they're able to gather through open source intelligence beforehand. But once we have seen them inside an organization, they almost always try to gather that specific information, as much information as they can about the organization and ways to stay persistent, how their IT processes work. Uh, in some instances, we, you know, we'll see them go through uh, certain personnel, IT personnel's email to try to gather more information about uh, the ins and outs of the org, um, who may need to contact who for what type of uh, permissions, what type of access. So, Does it sound like those, those profiles, those personas, like the responsibility areas of the individuals that they that Octotempest likes to target are like help desk, people, admins, stuff like that? Are those the primary types of people? So that is definitely one, um, one aspect. They do like to target IT individuals and people with access, right? But I think sometimes it is, uh, it's kind of like I mentioned before, where they're able to leverage some of the data that they were able to successfully exfiltrate from other organizations and then use that to then pivot and try to target other orgs. So I'm not going to say that's the only individuals that they target. Sometimes, you know, they have uh, information about a particular person that works for X company. I'm sure that they'll start with that and then try to uh, move laterally and see if they can move laterally to other higher privileged users. But uh, I'm not going to say that's the only one. I don't know if either of my colleagues have something they want to add to that. Yeah, I would say that's right. I think primarily what we're looking at is the extensive recon that's done by Octotempest. They look at whoever they can find that works at a certain company that they're targeting, whether it's through open source research. And they're really effective in finding individuals that they can get elevated like PII access to, they can find their social security numbers, they can find their other pieces of personal information that they can use to when they call up the help desk or try to socially engineer somebody else. And I think a lot of that stems back to if you think about like who Octotempest is and kind of how they started, right? When they have, uh, when they started with SIM swapping activity and cryptocurrency thefts, time and research was really needed for those activities. They needed to know everything about a target. They needed to know how they can gain access, how they can social engineer their way to access. And I think it also speaks to how fast they are because you know once they sim swap somebody or once they're attempting to you know steal cryptocurrency as they did in the past, right? Time is a, is not on their side. They have to move very quickly. So I think that's where we see a lot of that type of tactics roll over to what they're doing now, uh, especially this year. I keep hearing the word fast. (laughs) They keep being described as very fast, (laughs) which I think is part of the interest in this as a threat actor group, because it does create that like keyboard to keyboard, as you were saying before. And I also think organizations, you know, the savvy organizations, when they read these profiles on this threat actor are seeing how fast they are. And it's really, really deeply concerning that they're able to just like snap their fingers and turn around, you know, a breach into a ransomware event. Well, I think that part of that is necessity because not every victim organization is the hyperbole I'm going to use here is incompetent because a lot of the people that they target are highly competent organizations that can respond and do respond and respond quickly and they have to move quickly because they know that they're going to be detected at some point. It kind of increases the stakes and 
I think it's really interesting that there is this sort of personality of this threat actor group, from what I can tell. You know, they've adapted to become this particular kind of, of like almost digital crash and grab, you know, like smash and grab kind of situation, but they're grabbing potentially millions and millions of dollars. Speaking of that, let me ask this. It looks like final payload is primarily Black Cat. Is it always Black Cat ransomware? Is it always ransomware? What are we seeing in terms of, um, it's listed as Black Cat in the blog. Are there other variants? Are they doing stuff other than ransomware? What's the What's the end game? Yeah, typically what we see is um, a mixture. I think the goal, right, is financial gain. And a lot of that is, when they started in 2023, it was through extortion. They partnered with the Black Cat, like ransomware leak site, to extort victims by, you know, threatening to release information that they've stolen from the environment. Uh, Soon after, we started seeing deployment of ransomware. I think to this day, we haven't seen anything outside of Black Cat, but I think ultimately their goal is to identify some financial gain one way or the other uh, once they compromise these companies. One thing I wanted to add, too, that's kind of unique and it's also listed in the blog is primarily when you look at ransomware actors, they're in Eastern European regions or regions where Western law enforcement cannot reach them. Uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, difference about Octotempest. Uh, as far as we know, you know, they're in- native English speakers. They are presumed to be in areas that are not in those traditional ransomware ecosystems or environments. So they're playing a different game uh, while still being in this ransomware ecosystem. That's interesting. And I read in one of the other write-ups, I can't remember who the vendor was that did the the write-up on it, but it said that they're potentially, when they're doing the -the over-the-phone social engineering of like IT admins and stuff, they're like using fake accents. Have have you guys heard that? Yeah. So... (laughs) We, we've had the privilege of listening into a few calls. So th- there are some fake accents. And, and honestly, the, it, it probably speaks to some of the maturity of this group. But there have been instances of just obvious trolling. One instance that always comes to mind is they had social engineered the help desk into removing MFA and resetting the, the user's password. And this particular help desk agent was trying to be helpful and he was using, I think, a, a command prompt. And then the Octotempest person on the other end was like, oh, you're a, you're a ninja with that PowerShell. Man, I, I've never seen that before, right? So there, <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of, <laughs> there's both. There's accents, there's trolling, you know, the, whole, the, full, the full gambit. But I, I think I'll, I'll say, at least in the calls that I've been privy to, there's there's never been one where uh, we sat back and was, oh, well, that's just perfect social engineering, right? There, there was always some type of uh, awkward pause, for example, like I've mentioned before with that, you know, retrieving the social security number. I think there was maybe like a minute of, of dead air. So there, there's always something, right? Or uh, in some instances, actually, in, in a couple instances, the, the help desk agent, you know, would say, no, this isn't right. I'm terminating the call. Or, you know, I know who so-and-so is and you're definitely not them. Uh, I'm terminating and I'm going to, you know, start an, uh, an instant, right? So uh, they're, they're not some social engineering savants, right? They're, there's 
some in some cases, and actually most cases that I've seen, there's always something there that kind of sticks out that should raise a red flag, you know, if help desk personnel are following proper proper training. Got it. And so let me ask you about that then. What's one thing that you would say, and I'll I'll open this up to all of you, but what is one thing you say that you would say that organizations really need to do if they're trying to protect against this particular threat actor group? Well, you asked the question on something that I wanted to bring up that my colleague just mentioned, and that's, I think, in just about every engagement that I've been involved in here where the help desk was socially engineered, one of the questions we ask is, you know, was help desk protocol followed in this instance where the password was reset or something happened that allowed the initial access? I think in almost every incident or instance, the protocol was not followed. Or I think maybe in just one, they just didn't have a very strong protocol for it. And because they engineered urgency on the call, they, what, what, whatever reason in the social engineering, the help desk just did not follow protocol and reset the password or reset the MFA. And if there's something to impart on organizations, it's to have a strong policy for how do you truly identify the person that's requesting the password change or the MFA reset and realize how important that is in terms of brokering access to your environment. And how do you track those? How often do they happen? Who can actually do it? And are you auditing if uh, the process is truly being followed? Because in most cases uh, where we've been here, the process was just not followed this one time and this happened and it just flew under the radar and they got in. And that would be something that I'd want to impart because uh, one of the remediation steps that nearly all the organizations that we've worked with is they had to impose some some pretty heavy-handed uh, restrictions on that process so they got things back under control. Any other things we should mention? Yeah. Yeah, what, what I would add to that also is that users with highly privileged roles should be subject to stringent controls. Uh, so th- that's going beyond just the... 2FA with text messages, right? We should try to, if you have highly privileged users, they should be subject to satisfying fish-resistant multi-factor. So we're talking you know, things like FIDO keys, right? Because just to borrow the cliche, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Now, things that may be acceptable for your average users or would be, excuse me, unacceptable for your average user to, to go through, right? It's that, that, it's that balance of convenience versus, you know, the business processes versus security. So an average, average user may not want to uh, use a FIDO key or maybe having uh, session-enabled conditional access policies may be a little bit too much for the average user. However, uh, for highly privileged users, those things need to be enabled Organizations need to have control over the devices that they allow to authenticate to their environment. The same thing with where they allow their users to authenticate from. So it might not be the same for average users, but definitely for highly privileged users, there needs to be more stringent controls. Yeah, I think that's um, <laughs> that's a tried and true problem that we've had for a long time, right? Is 
identity access management, secrets management, permissions management, least privilege, need to know (laughs) stuff that's written in uh, colorful books going back 30 years that really is security theory that it sounds like this particular threat actor group has been able to leverage and exploit to, to get into organizations that aren't doing the best practices they should be doing. One of the, the low-hanging fruits that we always try to stress on our customers is if you have users with high levels of permissions, separate the account from their normal user account. And some people will roll their eyes and say that that's you know, a fundamental security practice, but the application of that is not. And in a lot of the compromises that we've dealt with in this third actor, the person they socially engineered ended up being highly privileged on their normal user account. And that aided in the the low dwell time that we referenced earlier in this episode. And, you know, along the vein of what can people do, what can organizations do is separate the privileges from normal user accounts. I hope uh, this rundown and the blog, which is available on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence blog, and it has a ton of hunting stuff, both cloud, Sentinel, threat intelligence reporting. This blog has a ton of stuff in it that I think it really makes sense for people to read and get comfortable with. I want to leave just with one topic that's a much bigger umbrella topic, and it's this. We have seen a trend, I think, over the past 12, 18 months, certainly the past six months or so, where we are seeing red teams at organizations dissolved, reduced, et cetera. And we're also seeing, probably over the past two or three years, this idea that social engineering shouldn't be part of red team exercises because it's not particularly valuable. Some people say it's too easy. Any comments? um, What would you like to share in terms of red team role here and red team role of social engineering? Yeah, I guess I'll start with the red team role in general. It it really is... Uh, not only it's unique, but it's also important. It's extremely important for red and blue teams to be able to work together. They both serve different functions. And if you have a highly functioning red team and blue team, uh, that goes a long way in protecting organizations. Now, as far as the the social engineering aspect, you know that that can get messy at times, especially when you talk about you know corporate policy and what is and is not off limits. I don't think one of the things we had mentioned that this threat actor had done in the past would be to threaten certain users. Uh, It's rare, but we've seen it happen. I believe there's a couple of screenshots uh, in the blog as well. So there's always that fine line. But I think generally, organizations should assume breach, right? Assume that a password is compromised. And then now what? But as far as the, the red teams and the usefulness of a red team... It really does. Red team and blue team go hand in hand to protect an organization. I love that. Yeah. I feel like red team kind of fallen out of favor a little bit over the past couple of years. And I'd like to see a big resurgence there, especially with threat actors like this that are so incredibly creative. I mean, they're almost operating just with so much impunity and so much creativity, really the way a good red team would operate. I think a lot of that I used to be a red teamer before I switched, I guess, to the blue team. And I see a lot of the value. And a lot of what I run into is like, when you look at something like conditional access policies, and I sit down with a customer and I say, what are your conditional access policies supposed to be doing? And they, they walk me through it. And I say, well, have you tested that these work? And they say, well, we think that they do. I'm like, well, that's what the red team is supposed to be doing. 
you have a design document for your conditional access, have your red team go in there and do that. If you don't have somebody doing that, how do you know your controls are working? And everybody wants to focus on like the annual penetration test, but are you testing your controls that your controls are functioning the way that you intended them to work? And like, as my colleague alluded to, like social engineering can get messy because everyone wants to talk about what you see at Black Hat and all the, the conferences and, and the media, but just have someone call the help desk and try to get their password reset out of policy. That's a social engineering test. It doesn't have to be, you know, something high end or, you know, sketchy that pushes the boundaries of what's appropriate and what's not. Yeah, I'd like to see, you know, some of the highly functional or red teams that are evolving. Go check this blog out. See which of these tools and tactics you're using, not using. You could potentially incorporate into your red team engagements because they're this blog is a fantastic guide to a host of creative attack techniques that you should start incorporating if you're really, really trying to mimic real threat actors. Because this is, in my experience, one of the most creative and prolific threat actors in terms of this short period of time that I've seen. Yeah, definitely. They they definitely do adapt. No two engagements uh, are, are generally the same. So that, that's been the unique thing when responding to some of these is the way that they're able to take, like I said, these, these tried and true tactics and put a different spin on them or uh, reimagining some of the things that you can do with tools, legitimate, legitimate software in an environment, right? So we've seen them do things like leverage uh, and EDR response capability in order to push out and do things on a certain endpoint. You know, who needs malware when you can just use uh, EDR, right? So. All right, before we wrap up here, any final things you'd like to share that everyone should know about the threat actor or anything we didn't cover? Uh, I, th- I think for me, um, one of the primary things to take away from, from my standpoint is that organizations are going to have to rethink their security posture to combat this threat actor. And honestly, the inevitable copycats that are going to follow. So, like my colleague said before, uh, this group was able to gain initial footholds into many organizations, uh, most of which with very, very capable security teams. You know, they weren't peppering orgs with zero days. They were just reimagining uh, some tactics, tried and true tactics, right? And then I guess the second thing would be, as people are reading the blog, I really want to underscore this, is the sheer speed at which, you know, they progress from initial access to just full domain dominance, Right. So uh, like we said before, it's not days, sometimes it's hours. So just something to be aware of. Full domain dominance. Wow. Anything else to add there? I don't have anything to add on that particular point, but uh, something that I did want to bring up, not just particularly with Octotempest, but in general in this day and age is organizations need to be posturing themselves to assume that the first factor is already compromised, assume that the password is lost and that the threat actor has the password and you need to build your initial access controls around the assumption that the password's already lost. And how do you uh, structure your alerting and your detection, your MFA and your conditional access of policies around that? Right, yeah. Defense in depth works, absolutely. When you're 100 years old like me, (laughs) you keep hearing the same things from the beginning of your career. See, I, I talk about the CIA confidentiality, integrity, availability almost like a couple times a week because it's that relevant still. But uh, yeah, things like two-factor identity and access management, 
this threat actor really seems to know how to leverage um, gaps in those security programs that um, they can, you know, wedge in and start moving around just from one or two tiny mistakes at an organization. Thank you for listening. Thank you all for joining me. I really appreciate hearing from your perspectives. We've got a lot more to talk about in our next episodes, but until then, make sure you go check out this blog on OctoTempest. It's on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence blog. And uh, thank you all for joining me on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence podcast. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Email us with your ideas at tipodcast at microsoft.com. Every episode will decode the threat landscape and arm you with the intelligence you need to take on threat actors. Check us out, msthreatintelpodcast.com for more and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.